0: Hey there. Welcome to Money Never Sleeps, a podcast that looks inside the head of entrepreneurs and what makes them do what they do. I'm Pete Townsend, your co-host of Money Never Sleeps, along with Owen Fitzgerald. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is kindly sponsored by Ireland's fintech and financial services recruitment specialists, Top Tier Recruitment. If you or a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, it is highly advisable that you build a relationship with a team at Top Tier Recruitment. You can find them at toptierrecruitment.com and tell them we sent you. In this episode, Paul Smith and I talk through a recent blog post from the inimitable Chris Skinner, where he goes through the myths of finance and technology from the perspective of Ann Bowden, founder and CEO of Starling. So, why don't we just get right to it with this week's episode of Money Never Sleeps? Money Never Sleeps, pal. Here we go again. Welcome to Money Never Sleeps. We're recording today from the offices of our sponsor, Top Deer Recruitment, to get inside the minds of entrepreneurs that are not talking to us at the moment by looking at a recent piece of content that struck a chord with us. I'm Pete Townsend. Paul Smith. And let's just get on with this and see if we can make this work. So... Paul, thanks for coming on very to welcome. the show again. You're becoming um, kind of a fixture as mm. a fill-in here every now and again when, when when Owen's not available. Um, and as we said last week, when Owen Fitzgerald isn't on the show, um, it's a good thing for Irish startups because that means he's going out to get the money. Exactly. Right? So, um, but great to have you here. You bring a different angle, which is uh, I always appreciate. So, thank you. You're very welcome. So, uh, Paul, what you and I are going to look at this week is that. Um, just last week, um, or a, as of the date of recording this this show, it would have been two weeks ago. Um, Chris Skinner, who is runs a blog, and I'll just you know that's probably not doing him a, a, a huge service by saying he runs a blog. It's called the Financer.com. Um, he's a, a speaker, influencer, author. All around good guy when it comes to talking about finance, technology, and fintech, and knowing that fintech isn't necessarily the combination of finance and technology can mean a lot of different things. Um, So he's out there on the speaking circuit quite a lot. He does a daily blog on uh, thefinancer.com. He has uh, some close relationships with the group 11FS that I spent some time with last year. So met him a couple times. Um, And I wanted to get into uh, something that he wrote, and we'll put the show uh, in the show notes. We'll we'll put this into the link um, with seven fin and tech truisms that we wish were myths, uh, with thanks to Ann Bowden. Ann Bowden, as how some of our listeners may know, is the founder and CEO of Starling Bank, um, one of the challenger banks in the UK, uh, and probably the one with the longest um, tenure out of kind of the the, the newer ones between. Um, you know, at least between them and Monzo. Um, they've been around a couple of years longer than Monzo. And there's a, there's a bigger story to that, obviously, um, between Starling and Monzo that we won't get into. Um, but an interesting local twist on this is that Elaine uh, Dian, um, who previously was on the show, I think she was episode 23, 24, um, she was the founder and CEO of Pocketwire. Mm-hmm. Um, she is now. Uh, the new country manager for Starling Bank here in Ireland because Starling Bank are moving uh, and expanding uh, their business to Ireland, uh, which is a great thing. And personally, very much looking forward to seeing that happen. Um, So Anne Bowden was up on stage at an event in the last couple of weeks. Um, It was at the New Statesman Fintech Summit. Um, Chris Skinner gave the opening speech. Um, Anne Bowden then got into going through what she saw as a number of the myths In the fintech world, Um, and we're going to dig into that. The first one, myth number one: um, fintech startups are founded by young white men. Um, Now, Chris went through his analysis of that, um, and his conclusion was that it was not a myth um, that it it, is fintech startups are in fact founded by young white men. Um, I personally see yes, are there a lot of young white men starting fintechs? Yes, absolutely. Um, But largely. Um, if you look at where all that activity is happening, um, the biggest fintech centers around the world are in the US, right? As well as in London, right? There's a lot of um, young white men in both of those countries. Is this a population thing or is this a, um, you know, more of a cultural thing where it's more young white men that are encouraged and supported Um, or is it, uh, you know, just... Uh, like, a, like I said, a, a population thing. What do you think? Hmm. How do you
1: find? How do you define young?
0: Well, right. <laughs> what
1: you consider I'm not, yourself young? I'm not please? young, no. Paul, you, you and I had this chat recently about <laughs> who's younger. Yeah. Right? You discovered how old actually yeah, yes, was. Yes, but a good five years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Sorry about that.
0: Um, but is this guys in their twenties that yeah. are doing this? Personally, when I look at my twenties, I did my MBA when I was twenty-three. I was in no way prepared for that, and the people that were in my cohort, my MBA program at Boston Uni- University, dragged my ass. Right? Mm. They carried me. Are can people in their twenties be that much of a visionary, that much that well experienced to actually build um, a massive fintech uh, startup from scratch?
1: Yeah, I, I think it depends. I mean, there's always going to be anomalies out there. Um, you know, Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg was pretty young when he started Facebook, yeah. and that turned out. okay. The Collison brothers turned out okay. Yeah, we yeah, about exactly. But for every you know one or two of those guys, there's always always going to be a whole load who haven't uh, who haven't done well and haven't haven't made it. I suppose. And um, I think more around the, the male female thing. Um, I, I think it is cultural. I think there are still those. Uh, barriers or perceived barriers for uh, for women in general in the workforce, um, including in, in entrepreneurship. Um, myself and Laura were, were talking to uh, Coral from Girls in Tech uh, recently, and she was kind of talking about, you know, having the opportunity there or having the people to look up to almost <clears throat> from a female perspective to show people or to show women that they can, you know, go off and do a startup or whatever. And um, I, uh, I think it is something that is probably changing a little bit, as you see more and more women do well, uh, not just in startups, but in in, in general. Um, So I would see it as something that is going to change, but uh, it is is a man's game at the minute um, for the majority of cases. Well, I think, I mean, you know, like we, like we
0: mentioned, encouraging people like, um, you know, Elaine Dehan, um, and mm. I still can't get the Irish pronunciation of that name right. It's probably rhymes with Sheehan, doesn't it? <laughs> so it's Dehan instead of Dehan, mm. right? Um, but, you know, in, when you meet people that are doing it, for example, yeah. when, when I met Elaine, she had just been through um, a uh, a massively fortuitous set of experiences between um leaving the corporate world where she had done uh, a stint with city mm-hmm. and have that point of a conversion in her mindset towards going out to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Um and she's a very how should we say um she's a very energetic person, very genuine person, very uh, you know, has this great leadership quality um that I just wanted to push and encourage and just say, listen, just keep doing what you're doing and do more what yeah. you're doing. Now, the reason why she moved on to Starling Bank, um, we should get her back on and have her tell that story, um, which is quite an interesting one, but it's just a matter of, well, luck, right, and timing uh, and those types of things. So seeing what she's doing now, um, I think, is a good thing and, and will hopefully you know, uh, turn the tide. We see a lot of that happening in the U.S., uh, but we need more and more of that happening over here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah? Um, myth number two, banks are run by old white guys. Now, again, when I left BNP Paribas three years ago, I wasn't yet an old white guy, but I definitely was a white guy. Uh, and I was at- in, Still in, are. Thinking. Yes, thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, no, I haven't changed that yet. <laughs> There is a, a, a certain level of turnover that I think, um, or not even turnover, but a certain, certain level of institutionalized- um, culture, institutionalized trends, norms, yeah. that yes, if we were to look back 30 years um, in banks, it, it was obviously full of men mm-hmm. um, and full of older white men. And that has continued. And um, But are things changing? I think they are. Um, based upon, I mean, again, just looking at the London market and seeing how multi multicultural that has become, mm. um, you know, there is a the tide is turning, right? Um, what What do you see with regards to the uh, conversations that you're having?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's similar to the myth we just talked about, really. I, I think it is a cultural uh, thing, as you as you kind of pointed out. Um, banks were traditionally, you know, white males, privately educated in that kind of club almost. Uh, and there still is a bit of that. But they are changing, you know. Bank of Ireland, Francesca Macdonald was appointed last year, and um, so w- we are seeing that kind of, I suppose, start to change. The, the thing that stood out to me an awful lot in uh, in the blog was the stats around. It was it was pretty much fifty fifty male female at entry level, mm-hmm. and it drops dramatically to eighty uh, twenty male female yes at, yep. at C suite, um, which is just staggering, you know. Uh, to, to think that there, there can be that much of a, of a drop-off. Um, what do know. you think that has to do with? Uh, I think there's a whole load of things. I mean, when we did our diversity report, we did an episode with uh, with Fessie and with Lisa Weiss and we kind of talked about a lot of these systemic issues that are there. And I think a lot of those are so deeply ingrained that it's going to take a long time for it to shift. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, women need to see other women doing well um, and I think that helps an awful lot and I, I think it shows uh, you know young women coming out of college in particular that you know I, there is a career path for me right to the top um, so I, I do think that's important I think you know they, they need to be shown uh, or need, need to kind of see that they can take a little bit of a risk sometimes um I was in the, the professional women's network in State Street when I was there. And one of the things that kept coming up repeat, repeatedly was that men are inclined to throw in a CV when they think they hit maybe 60% of a job spec. Yeah. Because women need to be a lot more comfortable, typically, uh, that they're covering, you know, 95% of it or they won't throw in a CV. Um, so there is that kind of attitude almost that, that needs to shift. But I think, you know, needs to be encouraged. Um, we're obviously in, in recruitment and we're always asked for 50-50 slates. So yep. male, female candidates for, for a short list. Uh, and it is tricky um, because, you know, the, the pool of candidates, um, particularly in technology, just doesn't exist. Um, so it's it's hard to do. But things like the 50-50 slate, I think, will encourage uh, more diversity, will encourage people to look at more more of a diverse slate of candidates and will encourage that and, and, and help things kind of flow through. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Number three, people don't
0: change their bank account. Mm. Um That people are switching to Starling, Monzo, Revolut, TransferWise, others for financial service. Um, I know one for me, I can't wait to change my bank account. Um, I have, you know, I have been with one Irish bank for a very long time um, who shall remain nameless. Um, And, um, you know, I'm looking at the entry of new players, new providers coming Mm. to Ireland um, and making my decision on which one that I'm gonna move over to just because with my business account, um, with my business life, with my personal accounts and my personal life, you just want some level of cohesion there. And I'm, I'm having a hard time getting that. Yeah. Um, but is it? Uh, it's hard to change your bank account. Um, I'm looking at the list of direct debits that are in my mm. personal account now with my Irish bank and thinking, Jesus, how am I actually gonna do that? Yeah. I tried to do that with one. Right. And this was just for, I think, my monthly car insurance payment. Mm -hmm. Um, And because it's paid for monthly rather than all in one whack, that someone, whoever's providing that financing agreement, said, sorry, we can only take IBANs that begin with IE. Right. They wouldn't let me switch to use my N26 account, which begins with a DE because it's a German bank. Um, And so I had to go back to using my Bank of Ireland one. Right. So, well, I just gave it up there. Um, But anyway you know, uh, it is hard to change your bank account. People, you know, what uh, what Chris Skinner is saying is that it is not a myth. People don't change their bank accounts. If you look at the numbers and how they stack up, I think it's something like, you know, uh, 25% of millennials now are using these challenger banks, neobanks, whatever you want to call them. It's another 75% of what should be the early adopters that mm-hmm. are not using them, right? Just because it is hard to change your bank account. Yeah. What do you think?
1: Uh, if I think about my own situation, so we have we have two bank accounts. of my personal one with an Irish bank and we have a joint account uh, with another Irish bank and I have a Revolut account. Uh, I'd love to switch over to Revolut or something similar because it just works and it's just yeah. easy and it's so straightforward. Um, but there, I think there's the thing about kind of closing your bank account almost in Ireland Uh, it's like an old school kind of, you don't close your bank account and need that relationship there when you get a mortgage and all that stuff. But I don't think that's necessarily true anymore. So I think all of those kind of, those myths, they're going to start to get busted an awful lot more and people are going to see that you don't necessarily need to have that, you know, relationship with your bank since you got your confirmation money, like I did, or do. um, Because it doesn't really matter, you know. Um, So I wonder... I wonder, do people switch or do people just kind of naturally stop using an account, you know? So if I think about how I use it now, I get paid or pay myself into my AIB account and I transfer money from that to my Revolut. Yeah. Uh, but there's more and more money going into the Revolut because I'm starting to use that more and more. So I'm pretty sure eventually I'll start just transferring directly into Revolut, AIB will tail off, I'll start switching direct debits and all of that, but yeah. you know, so yeah. that's how I see it happening for me. But I know. I know, yeah. When I could switch over the direct debits, I will, but it, it mm. is, it's a piece of work. There is some service yeah.
0: in the UK where that's supposed to make it easier for people to do that, mm. where it will automatically switch over all of your direct debits. I'm like just waiting for that to happen here. Myth number four new banks don't do real banking. I think this comes down to the business model, right? And that the newer banks are providing current accounts, right? Where they take your cash and then they then let you take it back, right? Um, not paying you any interest on that, but basically they're just what, they're paying for by the fact that they're providing you with a service. Sometimes, uh, you know, they'll get you for the $5.99 a month or $10.99 a month if you want to go to the premium service Mm. or get the metal card or whatever it is. Um, But generally, it's that, you know, uh, the total banking model involves not only just providing current accounts, um, but also providing lending, right? And that's the model is that you should be making more off the interest rate that you charge those to borrow money from you um, than what it is that you pay people uh, to deposit money with you. Now, none of these um, challenger banks are obviously, and most uh, big banks as well, are not paying anything for the cash that you deposit with them. Uh, but the reason that they're able to provide you with that service, the big banks able to provide you with that service with that deposit account, the current account. Um, is because they're making money on the lending side, right? Um, So myth number four is just that, that um, new banks don't do real banking. They are just doing um, current accounts. To me, that's a service. It's take my money, hold it in trust, um, and give it back to me when I want it. And in the meantime, you can do what you want with it. Um, Because I see that you, N26, have a banking license, or Revolut have a banking license, or Starling have a banking license, and that... Um, there is some deposit insurance right on top of those accounts. Um, what do you think about about the big banks?
1: And- I, I, I think um, I think what the Challenger banks currently do, they do really well and they do better than the big banks. So you know, you go for a meal. You want to split the bill with someone who has a similar challenge or the same challenger bank to you. You know, you can pay it with your card. You can tap the app. You can ask for money to be transferred. It's really quick and seamless, and it's instant. You're not waiting for days. You're not trying to get IBAN numbers off someone and all that kind of messing. Or you know, I very seldom carry cash anymore. I just don't don't use it. And um, so I think that that's kind of the first point. Um, and I wonder, you know, the other services like your mortgage or your car loan or your overdraft or, or whatever. Um, I, I don't feel like they're tied to your account anymore. Certainly anything I have isn't with the the bank that I would have my current account with. So I don't think there's that kind of uh, lock in almost. Um, and, you know, any of the banks that are set up here and the challenger banks that are set up here or any of the others that I'm aware of um, certainly have uh, more expansive licenses than just eMoney money or are mm-hmm. going through that process. So I'm sure it's just a matter of time before those additional services start to get added on. I gotcha. Makes sense. You know, we, we see
0: um, uh, providers come to market where all they're doing is lending, yeah. right? So we had Chris Koykon from Flender a long yeah. time ago, and that's all that they do is just lending, yeah. right? But there's a business model there for them that works in terms of the money, the funding that they get to then turn those loans around at a higher interest rate. Um, I'd love to see some of these, you know, start to come together, right? Mm. I think I think we'll get there. Myth number five, small businesses need branches. And you kind of touched on that a little bit, that, you know, what was that relationship like back in the day where you would go in to talk to your branch manager? Yeah. And that if you went to talk to your branch manager in this one branch um, and they said no, you'd go talk to another branch manager who your your, your mother or father may know mm. a bit better. And they would say yes, right, to get a loan or get something like that. Um The myth is that small businesses need branches to run their businesses effectively and be able to have that type of relationship and that type of trust to get access to capital. Um, You know, I think long gone are the days where small businesses are only really using uh, banks to get their funding. You know, to me, there's a couple different types of small businesses, right? There's the mom and pop shop. Right. That are, you know, will will get to one million in revenue per year, perhaps, and then um, struggle to grow from there. And then there's the emerging tech companies. Right. That are, are going, you know, shooting the moon, um, getting your branch bank manager in to provide you with funding in that second case in the emerging tech side. Um, that's not going to get you very far. Mm. It may fill the gap for short term liquidity needs. Um, but the mom and pop shop. Um, yeah, that's pretty important to have that. Um, and we saw in the blog post that, um, you know, there's a group in the UK, Lloyds, Barclays and RBS partnering together to launch a joint venture to service small businesses through physical hubs across the country. Right. And that um, shutting down all these branches has an impact on the small business economy. Um, I don't know if that is or isn't the case. What do you think?
1: If, if we think about our case Uh, So we're going into our fifth year in January and I've been into a branch for business purposes twice, one to open the account and one to uh, sign a letter for an overdraft. And that was it. And I didn't want to go in. If I didn't have to, I wouldn't have bothered. You know, I don't think it's a case anymore. And I could be wrong, but knowing what I know about banks and branches and stuff, I, I don't think it's the case that the bank manager actually makes a lending decision anymore. Yeah. They decide to send it to underwriters who are decentralized and, you know, sit out in wherever they sit. Yeah. Um so it's not like you have a team of underwriters there who like you, know you and, and whatever and just no, thank God, because it used to be the days back with Anglo and gosh, your man has three Mercedes in the driveway, and yeah. of course we give him a few mil. Yeah, thank God, it's gone. Yeah, um, I think you know if you're a cash business, maybe it's a little bit different, but again, banks are getting rid of all of their cash and coin business now as well. Absolutely. So it's harder to deposit, and the quicker we move to, uh, you know, card payments and, and e money payments and all that, all that stuff completely, then you know, the better. I I, um, I think one thing
0: perhaps holding us back a bit in Ireland
1: is the wet signature. Right. Yeah. The,
0: the wet signature it's rule crazy. is still a requirement here and yeah. that really slows things down.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh. But like for something like that, you can see how like a blockchain solution would be, would really fit in quite nicely if you think about like, Absolutely. Uh, I was asked Block W there last year, the one they did, I think you were there, they did around aviation leasing and aviation finance. Yeah. And they were talking about having some people waiting outside banks in Asia to get physical contracts or deeds of trust or whatever for transferring ownership of airlines. Like it's just crazy. It's just absolutely crazy that you have to do this stuff. But it's going to take time to change, but, you know. We'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there.
0: Hopefully. Um, myth six, big banks will catch up. And um, that look at how quickly and with such agility that the challenger banks, the neo banks, they as they call them in the U.S., have moved. Um, you know, the big banks will figure out how to do this. Um, to me, this is really about... Um, I I talk all the time about The Innovator's Dilemma, which is a Clayton Christensen book from about 20 years ago now, um, which says the only real way um, for a big business to do something Uh, with with true agility to build a new business model, to build new revenue flows, is to do it off to the side of the business, right? You're not going to be able to do this within the business. Um, We've seen time and again over the last number of years um, how some of the bigger players have tried to do things, particularly, maybe not specifically in banking, but um, with wealth management or UBS, as well as Investec, have both just flushed their robo-advisory services because they couldn't get to market with it um, in such a way that was profitable for them. Um, You know, Seeing the bigger players trying to do these types of things, um, one of them, I think it was, might have been, um, it was a a banking product that one of the big banks launched, a challenger banking uh, product, and it it, it didn't ultimately go anywhere. But um, I just don't see them being, the big banks being able to move the right pace to be able to um, operate
1: uh, truly in the digital space. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there's so many legacy issues. Um, even just around technology, you know, core banking platforms have changed so much. And, you know, if you go into any bank now that was running on a legacy system with bits added on and bits added on outside of that, it's just a complete mess. Yeah. And it takes so long. Even, you know, you've talked to loads of loads of startups and entrepreneurs selling into banks, procurement cycles or anything from kind of 12 to 24 months. Yeah. You know, so if it's going it's to be 12 long. to 24 months to get something done or, or decided on, uh, or even to figure out who the right person is to talk to, then I I, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. Um, But I think there's a real opportunity there, though. You know, obviously for challenger banks, et cetera, but uh, there's certainly opportunity for companies who can offer kind of white-label solutions for these banks if they can talk to the right people and get them to move at a quick enough pace. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, I think the the big banks, what they do have is they have the big balance sheets. Um, When they start, you know, we talked a a few minutes ago about the challenger banks starting to provide lending Um, you know the big banks have the ability to do that but um, you know I've just seen like you're saying there's the procurement cycle but there's also then the the personality side of it right when you are a a product manager within a big bank when you are a business development person head of a a big sales cycle uh, as part of a, a, a big bank Um, You are taking personal risk by going out of the line and saying let's create a brand new revenue flow that that could potentially cannibalize what we're doing right now Mm. Right and being able to take that risk and having that appetite to do that you commonly don't find that in the corporate world Mm. Um, Generally the people that are like that will leave within the next couple of years to go launch their own business, right? Um, Anyway, last one Um, digital banks aren't profitable Um, Chris Skinner's short comment was so far so true, Mm. right um, that if you look at the Monzos, uh, the Starlings, the Revolutes of the world, they are all burning a lot of VC money, right? And not burning it. Well, well some are burning it, but some, some are saying, obviously, that is the path to profitability, is to be able to spend and grow and accelerate. Um, I think that, to me, I'd, I'd agree that um, they're not yet profitable. But if you look at one that is a bit of a, a curveball, if you look at Coinbase, Um, I wouldn't call them a challenger bank, but they're definitely providing and building, um, you know, a new open financial system. Mm. Right. And what is a bank? A bank is a, you know, a a key part of the financial system. Um, And Coinbase have been profitable for the last two years, uh, which was an interesting thing that their CEO, Brian Armstrong, shared, um, I think, in the last month or so. Um, so, you know, that is a, probably a view into new finance and, and new technology and where things are heading in the digital world and blockchain and, um, and things like that. But um, so far, you know, I think that's uh, Anne Bowden uh, was right. Um, or sorry, she's saying it's a, it's a myth. Digital banks aren't profitable. But yeah, it looks like uh, uh, so far so true. What do you
1: think? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the numbers don't lie. They're not profitable yet. But you can see where the potential is you know, if you can get X hundred thousand or X million users uh, and start to turn a profit or, or start, to, start to generate revenue from those, um, then you, you have the scale, I suppose, of that kind of user base to be able to drive significant re- revenues. Yep. Um, so surely that's, that's the play for yeah. anyone in that space. Overall, when I look
0: at all this stuff, Paul, I, what I'm really looking forward to is seeing some of these things come together, mm. you know, yeah. um, and how what had been a venture capital um, you know, topic for a while now in funding these these challenger banks um, is how that will eventually become a private equity story in terms of moving to okay, you are now profitable, um, you are now approaching five to ten million per year in EBITDA, um, and perhaps we see a path you getting to a hundred million in EBITDA. Mm. Um, let's have a big private equity company make an investment there, um, and then. Um, based upon that own private equity companies' uh, specialties, would there be others in their portfolio that, or others out there that they would look to say, let's bring a Monzo um, and an N26 together um, or an, you know a Starling with an Umba uh, d- who are providing micro-lending in Kenya, right? Mm. Um, and is there an opportunity here to bring some of these business models together? I think
1: so it's going to be interesting. They're, they're global platforms. Yeah. You know, it's not like it's a bricks and mortar type of thing like banks used to be years ago. Um, so if they can get over regulatory hurdles and get licensed globally, then it's it's quick. Y- yeah. You know, there's there's nothing stopping them. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we will
0: cut it there. Um, thanks to Ann Bowden and Chris Skinner for neither one of them being in the room with us today, uh, because they'd probably pick a fight with us on a couple of <laughs> things that we talked about, which is great. Um, and I will eventually meet Ann Bowden. I fully expect because of um, what they're doing here. In Ireland, I've met Chris Skinner, Skinner before. He's a great guy, like I said. So, um, But, Paul, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Pete. Great. Money never sleeps, pal. That wraps it up, folks. Thanks to listening to Paul and I try to figure out why the world does what it does. The links for the stories we covered are in the show notes for this episode on moneyneversleeps.ie, so check us out online. Remember, if you or a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, it is highly advisable that you build a relationship with the team at Top Tier Recruitment as they really know their stuff. You can find them at TopTierRecruitment.com. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for editing and recording this podcast. As for me, I increase the odds of startup success. Get in touch through the contact page on NorioVentures.com, and you can follow Owen on Twitter at Owen Fitzgerald 9 Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya.
1: Money never sleeps, pal.